Good morning. My name is Kevin Johnson. This morning's passage is from 1 Samuel chapter 30, and it's in page 260, if you're following along in the Black Church Bibles. Hear the word of the Lord. David and his men arrived in Ziklag on the third day. The Amalekites had raided the Negev and attacked and burned Ziklag. They also had kidnapped the women and everyone in it, from youngest to oldest. They had killed no one, but had carried them off as they went on their way. When David and his men arrived at the town, they found it burned. Their wives, sons, and daughters had been kidnapped. David and the troops with him wept loudly until they had no strength left to weep. David's two wives, Ahinoam, the Jezreelite, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite, had also been kidnapped. David was in an extremely difficult position because the troops talked about stoning him, for they were all very bitter over the loss of their sons and daughters. But David found strength in the Lord his God. David said to the priest Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, Bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought it to him, and David asked the Lord, Should I pursue these raiders? Will I overtake them? The Lord replied to him, Pursue them, for you will certainly overtake them and rescue the people. So David and the 600 men with him went. They came to the Wadi Besor, where some of them stayed behind. David and 400 of the men continued the pursuit, while 200 stopped because they were too exhausted to cross the Wadi Besor. David's men found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David. They gave him some bread and water, and to, they gave him some bread to eat and water to drink. Then they gave him some pressed figs and two clusters of raisins. After he ate, he, he revived, for he hadn't eaten food or drunk water for three days and three nights. Then David said to him, Who do you belong to? Where are you from? I am an Egyptian, the slave of an Amalekite man, he said. My master abandoned me when I got sick three days ago. We raided the south country of the Chirithites, the territory of Judah, and the south country of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag. David then asked him, Will you lead me to these raiders? He said, swear to me by God that you won't kill me or turn me over to my master, and I will lead you to them. So he said, so he led them, and there were the Amalekites spread over the entire area, eating, drinking, and celebrating because of the great amount of plunder that they had taken from the land of the Philistines and the land of Judah. David slaughtered them from twilight until the evening of the next day. None of them had escaped, except 400 young men who got on camels and fled. David recovered everything the Amalekites had taken. He also rescued his two wives. Nothing of theirs was missing from the youngest to the oldest, including the sons and daughters, and all the plunder the Amalekites had taken. David got everything back. He took all the flocks and herds, which were driven ahead of the other livestock, and the people shouted, This is David's plunder. When David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to go with him and had been left at the Wadi Besor, they came out to meet him and to meet the troops with him. When David approached the men, he greeted them, but all the corrupt and worthless men among those who had gone with David argued, because they didn't go with us, we will not give any of the plunder we recovered to them except for each man's wife and children. They may take them and go. But David said, my brothers, you must not do this with what the Lord has given us. He protected us and handed over to us the raiders who came against us. Who can agree to your proposal? The share of the one who goes into battle is to be the same as the share 
of the one who remains with the supplies. They will share equally. And it has been so from that day forward. David established this policy as a law and an ordinance for Israel, and it continues today. When David came to Ziklag, he sent some of the plunder to his friends, the elders of Judah, saying, Here's a gift for you from the plunder of the Lord's enemies. He sent gifts to those in Bethel, in, Bethel, in Ramoth, to the Negev, and in Jatir, to those in Aror, in Sephmoth, and in Eshtemoah, to those in Rakal, in the, in the towns of the Jeremelites, and in the towns of the Kenites, to those in Hormah, in Borashan, and in Atach, to those in Hebron, and to those in all the places where David and his men had roamed. This is God's holy and inspired word. Thanks be to God. Well done. <laughs> hey, good morning. Uh, my name is Godwin, one of the pastors here. Hopefully I've met you, but perhaps I haven't. And uh, it's my privilege to actually close up First Samuel. So this has uh, just been a wonderful, hopefully for you, certainly for me, a wonderful study um, in this Old Testament narrative book, and that's been very enjoyable. Uh, next week, of course, is Easter, so I want to invite you to come back, of course, and bring your friends and family. We're going to have a, a good old time here together celebrating the resurrection of Jesus and considering uh, the hope of the gospel, uh, the hope of the resurrection for a world that is withering away. And so let me encourage you to uh, invite non-Christians to come. We would love to share with them about Jesus, and we want to make the gospel crystal clear next week. Okay. Let's take one more moment to pray. Pray with me. The precepts of the Lord are right, making the heart glad. The command of the Lord is radiance, making the eyes light up. Oh, Father, we want glad hearts this morning. We want our eyes to be lit up. We want to be encouraged and in order for these things to occur, we need your Spirit to come now and fill us and give us eyes to see and ears to hear wonderful things from your Word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so Robert Frost, some of you uh, know Robert Frost, maybe not personally, but hopefully you've heard of Robert Frost. And in one of his most famous poems, he said this, Two roads diverged in a wood, and I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. As we come to our conclusion in our study of 1 Samuel, it seems we've witnessed two roads. One road, certainly more traveled. It's the road of the nations. It's the road that the kings and kingdoms who appear to be powerful have been walking. It's the road of priestly Eli and his wicked sons. It's the road of Saul and his companions. Saul, a king like the nations. Many travel this road, but we'll see in our passage today, but we've seen already in some ways, this road leads to death and judgment and destruction. But thankfully, there's another road, a low road less traveled. It's the road of Hannah and Samuel and Jonathan, and of course, David, and all who have aligned themselves with David. And this is the road God has laid for his people. It's not free from danger. It's not free from pain or hardship. But friends, it is the right road because it leads to life 
and blessing. The Bible is filled with images of these two pads, of these two kind of different groups of people. Jesus himself speaks of sheep and goats or the wheat and the chaff. In the Old Testament, in the book of Deuteronomy, it speaks of blessings reserved for one group of people and curses reserved for another group of people. And it it says in Deuteronomy, if you follow God and stay close to his covenant, you will be blessed. But if you refuse to do those things, there are curses coming. Psalm chapter 1, the passage we just read earlier uh, this morning, describes the blessed person who delights in God's law and is like a tree planted beside flowing streams. He is happy, he is blessed, he's prosperous, he's fruitful. But then there are the wicked. They will not stand up on the day of judgment, for the way of the wicked leads to ruin. So friends, as we come to a close here in 1 Samuel, I wonder which path are you on? Who have you aligned your life with? Will you be blessed with David's greater son, Jesus, or will you be cursed without him? Two paths. One is less traveled. And friends, even if you answer those questions um, pretty quickly, you know, you're a Christian, and so you're on a particular path, you're, you're with a particular group of people. Well, there's a follow-up question that I have for you, and here's, here's that question. Are you enjoying this path of blessing? Or have you slipped onto the old path? It's not just about getting on the path. It's about staying on the path. Here's the main point of the passage. I trust it's the main point of these chapters in a sentence. Enjoying God's blessing, excuse me, enjoy God's blessing with Jesus or face God's curse without him. I'll say it one more time. Enjoy God's blessing with Jesus or face God's curse curse without him. I'm going to summarize chapter 29 as we move quickly into these uh, chapters. Uh, I'm going to focus on chapter 30 and 31. What we're going to see in chapter 30 is a life that's blessed with David, and what we're going to see in chapter 31 is a life that's cursed with Saul. A life that's blessed with David, then a life that's cursed with Saul. Chapter 30, blessed with David. So where do we leave off in our story? You'll recall from chapter 27, David and his mighty men are hiding from Saul, and they're hanging, of course, with the Philistines. And the Philistines, as we get to the kind of beginning of chapter 28, the Philistines are about to face Israel in battle. And so when David turns up with Achish's forces, that's one of the Philistine commanders, the other commanders that are Philistines, they're troubled. What's David doing here, right? I mean, how could they trust this David, the guy whose main claim to fame is killing 10,000 Philistines? And so, you know, Achish tries to negotiate a little bit. This is all chapter 29. But he ends up sending David and his men home. But their problems are just getting started, David and his mighty men, as we kind of dip into chapter 30. Upon returning home, what do they discover? Well, the Amalekites, this whole other group of people, the Amalekites have attacked their town. They've captured their women and stolen their children, and homes are destroyed, and families have been devastated. And so here we are. I want you to notice verse 4. This leaves them absolutely heartbroken. Now, everyone knew why captives were kept alive. They could be sold for profit to merchants. They would eke out the rest of their lives in bondage and slavery and misery. So this is an absolutely atrocious situation that these men are thinking about, and they're, they're kind of picturing their own wives and children in this situation. 
And I want you to remember, this isn't an isolated disaster for David or his men. David has been on the run. He's been hunted and persecuted and misrepresented and slandered for a long time. This is just kind of another notch on his suffering belt. Now, I want you to notice these people are so grieved by all of this, which is understandable, that they have no strength left to weep. Do you see that? I wonder whether you've been there before. You're so devastated by some news that at some point you just have no more tears to cry. So the anguish of these 600 soldiers was so strong, in fact, that notice they started talking about stoning David. You know, they, they turned quickly on David and, and, and their grief quickly kind of transmuted into bitterness and rage. And, and who can they blame? Well, David is right here. David's been leading us in all of this nonsense. And so they get angry at David. They've been enduring a lot alongside David. You know, we all have times when you think you can't, you know, things can't get any worse. When you think this is the last straw, you just can't take any more. And then comes Ziklag, right? You know, the, the last straw after the last straw. Uh, we're tempted to add a line to Psalm 30, verse 5, which says, Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning and disaster strikes in the afternoon. You know, that's often how we feel and, and in, in certain circumstances that we have encountered. Well, God's anointed King David was, was a suffering servant, much like his future descendant, Jesus. And if we're going to share in the sufferings of Jesus, we too will experience this sort of cross-shaped life. We ought not be surprised by it. It's not only part of being a human, it's very much part of being a Christian. And we know this, let me just remind you, and we see this in our story, God will sustain us through it. In fact, isn't that what we see here with David? Look, look with me at the end of verse 6. That sentence says, but David found strength in the Lord, his God. So friends, weeping may endure for the night and the morning and the afternoon and the evening, but God does not leave us alone. David had no strength left, but when David's strength fails, God's strength takes over. I want to kind of explore a little bit. What does it look like for us here in the 21st century to find our strength in the Lord? I want to give you three fairly quick applications, okay? Here's the first application. Interrupt your panic with prayer. Do you remember what happened back in 1 Samuel 27? The beginning of that chapter, David was in the doldrums, right? But he listened to his own heart, and as a result of kind of listening to himself, he found despair. He was panicked. Saul, of course, was after him. What does he do? But what he didn't do was turn to the Lord, Look what he does here in verses 7 and 8. David said to the priest, Abiathar, son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought it to him, and David asked the Lord, should I pursue these raiders? Will I overtake them? The Lord replied to him, pursue them, for you will certainly overtake them and rescue the people. So friends, David here doesn't let his panic override his prayer. He seeks the Lord. Friends, how often do we struggle with this? We panic, don't we? Quickly, easily. We're frantic. We're frazzled in our own heads. And often our headspace isn't healthy. We need to develop the discipline of interrupting our panic with prayer. 
bringing our fears to the Lord, casting our cares on the Lord and seeking his face, seeking his guidance, just like David does here. Here's an example uh, from, from kind of earlier in 1 Samuel when David runs to Gath from Saul. How does he respond? What was in his heart? Well, we can actually, we actually know those, uh, those things because we can read it in Psalm 56. Here's Psalm 56, just a few verses. Listen to David's heart as he's running to Gath from Saul, okay? He says, be gracious to me, Lord, for a man, Saul, is trampling me. He fights and oppresses me all day long. So I just want to point out the fact that he's deeply honest with his God. He's lamenting to God. He's bringing his concerns to God. He's not hiding anything. But then this is where he turns. Listen, as I keep reading this psalm, when I am afraid, I will trust in you, in God whose words I praise, in God I trust. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? You hear that? Friends, that is interrupting panic with prayer. Yes, being honest with God, but then also moving your heart to trust in the Lord. That's the first application. Here's the second one. Recognize that God is your God. God is your God if you are a Christian. Now, this sounds probably stupid, obvious to most of us here in the room. Uh, if I'm in the pit, then you remember God. Okay, thanks, Pastor. But I want to underscore this because I think we often miss this, okay? Notice it says that David found strength in Yahweh, his God. Do you see that? You see, there's, there's an even kind of greater danger in Israel of holding to the official covenant of faith without having a vital personal faith. And this is something that church people struggle with as well. Sure, Jesus is the Son of God, but when, in the depths of, of their being, do they cry out that Jesus is mine and, and the Son of God who is the one who loves me and who gave himself up for me? In this story, David could no longer say my house or my city or my possessions, but he could still say my God. And this is where the strengthening must begin, friends. There is a God there is a God, and he is greater than all of the things that you are going through. And listen closely here. And he is your God, if you're a Christian. He is your God. He is your Father. This is why Jesus said to pray, our Father. He is our Father. In other words, God has not left us to our own devices. He has not left us to our own kind of pitiful resources. We can say he is our God, just like David. We don't have Abiathar, nor do we have an ephod, but the same plan we see here before us is open to us as well because we have a priest that is greater than Abiathar. Hebrews chapter 4, listen to this closely. Since we, since we, those who are in Christ, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, here's the exhortation, listen carefully, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness. We have access, we can be bold, so that we may receive mercy. God has something for you in that place of prayer and in that time of trouble, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. Friends, when things are tough, we may not get precise answers to our questions, right? But we will find grace to help. That's what that verse says. You know, I often don't need more information. I need endurance. I don't need to know something, even though I kind of want to know something, you know, in my troubles. I just need to stay on my feet. 
So friends, let me encourage you. Let me exhort you. Use your priest. Use your access to God the Father. He is your God. He is your Father. And because of, because of the mediated blood of Jesus, you can go boldly to God for prayer. This is part of strengthening yourself in God. Number three, draw strength from God's promises. Draw strength from God's promises. Back in chapter 23, Jonathan, at kind of considerable risk to himself, he went and found struggling David, and it says, strengthened his hand in God. Very similar language to what we see here. So so what kind of encouragement did Jonathan give to David? Verse 17 of chapter 23 says this, listen, the hand of my father, that's Saul, will never find you but you will reign over Israel. Jonathan was merely reaffirming the promise uh, that the kingdom would come to David. And it's the same thing that God had promised him. So something similar, I believe, is happening here. David is remembering what God has promised him, and God gives him, notice, direction and reassurance. You're going to take over this army. You're going to rescue all those captives. Go in the strength of the Lord. Now, this is great news for David, isn't it? I mean, we, we wish we had this kind of explicit news given to us, right, when we're in the pit, when we're struggling. But we don't always get such a clear, specific kind of response to our troubles. But friends, God certainly has given us juicy promises that can eclipse even the biggest heartaches, right? Like what? Well, I'm sure... In walking with the Lord, if you know your Bibles, you can probably list a few. Let me just give you two. Here's one from Jesus. I will never leave you nor forsake you. He's always in the boat, right? Here's another one from the Apostle Paul. Nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Nothing. Never. These are juicy promises that we ought to hold on to. So what happens next in our story? Well, 400 go with David to find the Amalekites, and notice 200 are tired, and they stay behind. They find this Egyptian slave who uh, the Amalekites have abandoned. There's, you know, this slave has had no food and no water for three days, and so they feed him, and he ends up leading David and his 400 men to the Amalekite army. And they find the Amalekite army, notice, in verse 16, eating, drinking, and celebrating, so probably full of pride and full of wine. There they are. So what happens next? Look with me at verse 17. Look what David and his army does. David slaughtered them from twilight until the evening of the next day. None of them escaped except for 400 young men who got on camels and fled. Lucky dogs. So this is essentially utter annihilation. And why is this important? Well, friends, we must remember the history of Israel. When Israel left Egypt, when they were rescued by God miraculously and left Egypt, Egypt, the Amalekites attacked them. They started picking off some of the stragglers on the back side of Israel as they're walking towards Mount Sinai. And so God had singled them out, the Amalekites, for judgment. And he had asked Saul to annihilate them. This is several chapters ago. But Saul, as you'll remember, failed to do it. So friends, what we're seeing here is where Saul failed, David succeeds. Once again, and this has become a pattern we've seen all the way through our study, David, the anointed king, faithfully protects his people. And everything, notice everything in verses 18 through 20, everything is recovered. Everything is recovered. All of the wives and the children and all the stuff is recovered, right? But, it's a very dramatic kind of story going back and forth, but some of David's men don't want to share with the 200. 
Sheesh. Like these 400 fighters are they're just they're just mean and nasty. You know, they proposed to David that the 200 slackers can have their families back and that's it. Okay. It's a great way to kind of disguise their greed, right? It's the Han Solo response. You know, thinking about money or possessions more than thinking about people. I mean, what scoundrels we see here. Unfortunately, this is human nature, isn't it? I want you to notice, friends, David's gracious response in contrast to the 400 men in verses 23 through 25. Let me read these verses to you. But David said, my brothers, you must not do this with what the Lord has given us. He protected us and handed over to us the raiders who came against us. Who can agree to your proposal? The share of the one who goes into battle is to be the same as the share of the one who remains with the supplies. They will share equally. And it has been so from that day forward. David established this policy as a law and an ordinance for Israel, and it still continues today. And then we see him distributing some of the spoils to to, to the Jewish leaders in these various towns. I mean, he is just so generous. He proves to be this generous king who dispenses gifts. And did you notice, friends, the reason for his generosity in verse 23? My brothers, you must not do this with what the Lord has given us. Here it is. This isn't David's plunder. This is the Lord's plunder. God gave them the victory. The battle, like every other, for Israel belongs to the Lord, and thus so does the plunder. It's David's theology that shapes his generosity. It is a theology of grace. It's a theology of grace that keeps his eyes riveted on God, riveted on God's generosity, which then in turn shapes his own generosity. Well, what about the 400? Well, they're functioning from a theology of works that is always impressed with its own contributions. Look at verse 22. Look at how they're thinking about what they've done. They say, we will not give any of the plunder we recovered to them. (laughs) We did the work. We we, we should be owed this plunder and these spoils. It sounds logical. It's how many of us think. It's certainly how many people in the world think. But David knows better. This is God's gift to them. As Dale Ralph Davis has said, the difference between grace and works is the difference between worship and idolatry. The Christian who is infused with the thought that that all he has is God's gift, all he has received is just grace from the Lord, will find himself repeatedly on his knees, adoring and thanking and praising and worshiping the Lord. But friends, when we don't grasp grace, we will nosedive into idolatry because that's the inevitable corollary to self-sufficiency, is it not? Friends, do you operate, do you function out of a theology of grace or a theology of works? We got to see here in this story with David, grace is not merely kind of this theological concept, it's the stuff of worldviews. It provides us a lens through which to interpret and see our entire world. It's not something that applies only to how we enter the kingdom of God, but to every moment of kingdom life. Grace, grace must always, must always permeate our practical theology. We must always confess that this success or that new job or this loved one or that meal or this friendship is given to us by the Lord. It's the Lord's gifting. It's his grace. And I know this this sometimes makes us feel humble, 
right? Because we want to take credit for things. That's kind of how we're bent. But this way of thinking is the only thing that will keep you and I from worshiping ourselves. Okay, back in 1 Samuel chapter 8, you may remember this, you may not, that's okay. Back in 1 Samuel 8, Samuel warned Israel that the king of their choosing, the king like the nations, would only take, take, take. But look at God's king for Israel here. Look at David. He only gives, gives, gives. He gives to the men who fought with him, who earned it. He gives to the ones he left behind who didn't earn it. He gives to the leaders of Judah, to the people of God. And so we come to the end of this chapter, and we are so impressed. We ought to be so impressed with David's gracious kingship. I mean, how many were so blessed under his rule? And he's not even officially ruling right now. How many were helped and encouraged? I mean, he is, he is a life-giving leader, is he not? But friends, there's a greater Davidic king who gives even more. Throughout 1 Samuel, we've recognized this kind of messianic mold that God sovereignly shapes through the life of David. And this mold gets filled up by Jesus in the New Testament because it's Jesus who is the eternal anointed king who gives and gives and gives to his subjects without taking. He gave himself up for the church. According to Mark chapter 3, Jesus has bound the strong man Satan and plundered his house. And like David, didn't Jesus share his spoils of victory with all of God's people, his inheritance with all of God's people? Just like all who are attached to David here in 1 Samuel, they will be blessed. All who are attached to Jesus by faith, they will be blessed. And so if you're a Christian here this morning, this is something for you to revel in. This is something for you to consider deeply, to think deeply about all that you have received, all of your spiritual blessings, all, all that is part of your spiritual inheritance because you are in Christ. A great passage which will open up that window to you is Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 3, running through verse 14. And here's why this passage is phenomenal. Paul not just kind of bullet point lists, here are all the blessings for you if you're in Christ. Spiritual blessing, number one, boom. He worships his way through that. He worships his way through that list which invites you and I to do the same. So let me commend that passage to you, Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. Okay, so now the story takes a sharp turn. Let's put our eyes and our attention on 1 Samuel 31, where we see a life that's cursed with Saul. Now, there are two chapters in 1 Samuel. Pastor Troglin was pointing this out to me. Two chapters in 1 Samuel that have no reference to God. They're both miserable chapters. This is one of them. This is the very end of Saul. As I read, I want you to take in how absolute and thorough and damning this is, this ending is, okay? So let me read 1 Samuel 31. The Philistines fought against Israel, and Israel's men fled from them and were killed on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines pursued Saul and his sons and killed his sons, Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malchishua. When the battle intensified against Saul, the archers found him and severely wounded him. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and run through with it, or these uncircumcised men will come and run me through and torture me. But his armor bearer would not do it because he was terrified. And Saul took his sword and fell on it. 
When his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died with him. So on that day, Saul died together with his three sons, his armor bearer and all his men. When the men of Israel on the other side of the valley and on the other side of the Jordan saw that Israel's men had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned the cities and fled. So the Philistines came and settled in them. The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons dead on Mount Gilboa. They cut off Saul's head, stripped off his armor, sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to spread the good news in the temples of their idols and among the people. Then they put his armor in the temple of the Ashtoreths and hung his body on the wall of beth Shan. When the residents of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all their brave men set out, journeyed all night, and retrieved the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of beth Shan. When they arrived at Jabesh, they burned the bodies there. Afterward, they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. What? A mess. I mean, just just a pile of rubble at the end of Saul's story. The story of the battle is told in just one verse. In the first verse, and then kind of a summary of the consequences of the battle, battle is told in verse 6. Verse 1, notice the men of Israel are slain in battle. Their lines have broken. The rout has ensued. There's a chase, and they all were massacred on Mount Gilboa. In verse 2, we see that Saul's sons die. And we can't help but remember Jonathan. What a faithful man Jonathan was. Faithful to God, faithful to David, faithful even to his father Saul. Now he's dead. And Saul, notice he's surrounded by archers. You know, it reminds me of the scene with Boromir at the end of Fellowship of the Ring, if you're familiar. And it's a great scene where this character is just, you know, just a redemptive scene. He's kind of gone down a bad path, but at the very end, he kind of helps and saves the heroes. Well, that's not what we see here with Saul at all. This isn't redemptive in the least, right? There's no heroism here. It's tragic. He asks his armor bearer to finish him off or else these, you know, uncircumcised Philistines will come and mistreat him. But the armor bearer, notice, is too frightened. So Saul falls on his own sword. I mean, there's nothing heroic about this, is there? It's not like the firefighters who died running up the towers or the men who stormed the beaches of Normandy. This is just an utterly tragic defeat. The king, his three sons, the entire army, according to verse 6, all killed in one battle. And the aftermath of this for Israel, notice verse 7, it's also dreadful. You see, the Philistines now occupy the towns of the Jordan River Valley and everything on its eastern side. They've given up land. I mean, this is a total collapse of everything Saul has built. I think Saul's suicide is symbolic. You know, the Philistines didn't remove him from his throne. David didn't remove him from his throne. It was Saul himself who removed him from his throne. He fashioned his own downfall through his faithless, godless behavior, which was then confirmed by his suicide. And things get even worse from there. As the next day, notice the the Philistines come to loot the bodies and they cut off Saul's head. They Goliath him and then fasten his body to the wall so that all might see and mock and revel. And they preach the good news throughout their lands. You know, the God of Israel is defeated. And look at his great so-called champion. He's done. You know, the only good news in this chapter seems to come at the very end. These good men of Jabesh Gilead, they 
Remember how Saul, back in chapter 11, helped them. And so they recover Saul's body and they bury it. Thus ends 1 Samuel and the story of Saul. Saul's story is like a bad dream, isn't it? It's like a bad dream that gets worse. In stark contrast to this chapter, we see David and Israel and where they ended up in chapter 30. How did it come to this? How did it come to this for Saul? He was the first king of Israel. Now we see utter ruin, utter disaster, not just for him either, but for all who are connected to him, right? So, so, so why did it end up like this? And to answer that question, we actually need to take a step back and remember what God is doing in this story. God is the one who has brought judgment on Saul. In fact, he's promised that. And so in that sense, this isn't only a tragic story. It's actually a story about God's faithfulness to fulfill his own promises. He punishes evil. He rights every wrong. He is a God of justice because he cares for his people. He's warned Saul several times that if he continues on this kind of rebellious path, God would judge him, God would curse him. And so here we see his demise. Remember the chain of events that kind of have led to this? I mean, so many things have happened, right? Let me, let me just kind of remind you. So flip back to 1 Samuel 13. Okay, we're going to do this as quick as possible. I just want to show you what's occurred already and, and kind of see the downward spiral of this man named Saul, this king. So in 13, he goes off to war with Israel. He, he waits for an offering, presumes that he has the right to sacrifice. And so he's disobeying God. And Samuel says back in chapter 13, listen, your kingdom will be taken away. And then flip over now to chapter 15. Samuel drops the bomb on him, you know. God's taking away not only your kingdom, but he's taking away your kingship, your kingly line, your lineage. God has rejected you because you've rejected God. And then chapter 17, look at chapter 17. Here's the, the long chapter, the longest chapter, I think, in this, uh, in this story, and it's the story of David and Goliath. And here's the deal, friends. He was supposed to fight Goliath, Saul, the champion, the king of Israel, but he was too afraid. So in goes the shepherd boy. Chapter 18 and 19, what did we see? We saw this evil demonic spirit come upon Saul and he grows fearful and jealous. He tries to kill David. He even sends assassins to kill David. In chapter 22, do you remember this chapter? He becomes kind of this, this crazy dictator standing on a hill with a spear. Remember this? And, and, he's, and he kills all the priests. He kills all of God's priests except for one kind of escapes and gets away to David. In chapters 24 and 26, we see that he's spending all of his resources to hunt David, God's anointed king. And, and two times in those chapters, David is the one who spares Saul. And then we see from last week's message, as we looked at Psalm, excuse me, 1 Samuel 28, he's just chilling with a witch. Of all the people to commune with, at the very end of his life, when Samuel is declared, you are an enemy of God. He continues to commune with a witch. And Samuel tells him, you will die tomorrow in battle with your sons. And that's what we see happen. And we cannot miss the other tragedy here, the collateral damage. Look at all who are cursed alongside Saul, all the casualties of his malfeasance. Four times in this chapter, the word fall is used very intentionally. Israel's army fell dead on Gilboa, verse 1. Saul fell on his own sword, verse 4. His armor bearer also fell on his own sword, verse 5. The Philistines found Saul and his sons fallen, verse 8. So friends, when you are around Saul, 
you will eventually fall. So yes, Saul was cursed, but I want you to see clearly all of the collateral damage. Look at what happens in his wake. Friends, if you align yourself with one of God's enemies, you are in danger of becoming one of God's enemies. If you align yourself with God's cursed, you are in danger of being cursed. What is the takeaway for us today? Here's the takeaway. Don't make friends with the powers of this world. Don't get too friendly and chummy with Satan and worldly ideologies and your fleshly tendencies. Stay close to Jesus. Stay connected to God's anointed king, Jesus, as he invited his followers in John chapter 15. says, abide in me. Remain in me. Stay close to me. Draw strength and resources for your trials and tasks each day from me. There's a special blessing in the Old Testament. You might be familiar with this. It's in the book of Numbers. It's the Aaronic priestly blessing, and it's just, it's just so beautiful to hear. So let me read it to you. It says this, May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. This is perhaps the greatest benediction in the Bible, a blessing for the Lord's people. Well, friends, what we saw in chapter 30, how God's people must have, you know, felt with David, they must have felt this sort of blessing, utterly blessed by God through David. But what does it look like to be cursed by God? For God to turn his face from you, to hide his favor from you, to withhold good things from you. Well, here in chapter 31, it's perhaps the clearest picture of that in the Bible. Saul's life is the polar opposite than the grand ironic blessing of numbers. If that was the supreme benediction, chapter 31 in Saul's life as a whole and his narrative arc would be the supreme malediction, the antithesis of divine blessing. Saul is the breaking bad of the Bible. Now, if you've seen that show, you know, shame on you. But let me tell you a little bit about the show. It's, it is instructive in that we see one man's small choices over the course of years and how it just brings him and leads him to devastation and ruin and destruction. I mean, uh, th this slow, persistent descent into darkness as this man, the, the main character, makes choice after choice, which leads him into more and more evil to the point where wickedness is then normalized for him. A man who is okay with evil. Well, friends, isn't this what we see with Saul? He's God's enemy under the curse of God. If we would rewrite the ironic benediction to be a malediction, it would read something like this. May God curse you and abandon you. May he keep you in darkness and give you only judgment without grace. May he turn his back on you and remove his peace from you forever and ever. Amen. Friends, imagine someone receiving this curse. Imagine someone living this life. Well, we don't really need to imagine because this is precisely Saul's story. This is what we all deserve, is it not? The story of Saul is our story, if not for God's timely interruption. 
And here's the absolutely stunning reality, and this is taken from Galatians chapter 3, and we've got to think about this. Paul's Paul's teaching here is just so powerful and meaningful in light of what we see here as we're thinking about the curse motif in the Bible. What do we see Paul teaching in Galatians 3? We learn that Christ has redeemed us from the curse. And how did he do that? By becoming a curse for us. You hear that? I don't know whether you've heard any of this sermon. Maybe you've kind of, you know, checked out for a minute, but I don't want you to check out right now. So I'm going to read that verse again. I want you to listen closely. Christ has redeemed you, Christian, from the curse by becoming a curse for us. So sure, Jesus is David's greater son, but in another way, Jesus is the ultimate Saul when he's on the cross, for he bore the curse of God. Look at Saul. Look at Saul. Cursed, surrounded by enemies, pierced by a sword, dying in shame, publicly proclaimed by the Gentiles. Now look at Jesus on the cross. Cursed, surrounded by enemies, pierced by nails, publicly proclaimed by the Gentiles in mocking fashion. Jesus of Nazareth, (laughs) King of the Jews. The curse has fallen on Jesus, and he was cursed so that you, Christian, can be blessed. Think with me about that. And if you're not a Christian here, you need to know what you're destined for apart from Christ because Saul's story will become your story unless you have Christ. The good news of the gospel is you can have him if you repent and believe. And you, Christian, you need to know what you've been saved from. You're not just in possession of forgiveness and the Holy Spirit and eternal life and reunions with departed ones and this wonderful church family and maybe other brothers and sisters that you know. You weren't only saved from your sins. You were saved from this curse, from judgment, a judgment that includes eternal conscious torment, the place that Saul currently resides. You have been saved from chapter 31 and put into the blessing of chapter 30 with the greater David, Jesus. Friends, there are lots of things that you can do without Jesus in this world. You can get sober and clean. You can have a good marriage. I mean, Muslims and atheists, some of them have good marriages. You can be good parents. You can generally be successful in this life. You can have 80 or 90 years of relative bliss, especially with our technology, with low-grade pain and difficulty. That's possible, but you cannot remove this curse that is upon you by virtue of you being born a rebellious sinner. No one, no one can step outside the supreme malediction, this great curse of God, on their own. But the good news of the gospel tells us that Christ stands in the place of sinners. He has taken this curse upon himself for all who repent and believe in Christ. Friends, this is the gospel we preach, we proclaim. It's not first the gospel of parenting. It's not first the gospel of prosperity. The gospel of salvation 
from the curse of sin. So, may God strengthen us in this holy week. May God strengthen us to revel in this gospel, in this good news. And then may, may God strengthen us to preach this gospel this week into Easter to all who are today still living under the curse. May God have mercy on them. And may God give us boldness to share this good news. Amen. Take a moment to uh, silently ponder this passage. <laughs>